0: Took a little break last week from Daniel. We spent uh, some time in Jeremiah, and we're coming back to Daniel. Also keep a bookmark in 1 Peter chapter 2. Daniel chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 2. You guys remember the original uh, Jurassic Park movie where um, You have the creator of Jurassic Park riding in the car with this guy who's the investor. And um, the investor says, you know, we're going to be watching very closely just to making sure that we're checking all the boxes to make sure that this park is safe and secure. And uh, the, the, the maker of Jurassic Park looks at him and says, at the end of the 48 hours, you will be apologizing to me. You guys remember that moment? And everybody was just like, if you know anything about those movies, you're just like, what a prideful fool. Because he didn't take the proper precautions to make sure that bad things didn't happen. A little bit later in the movie, we see that same investor guy, poor guy. He's in this car with these two kids. You remember that moment where it's like the famous moment where the cup with the water in it? <laughs> and they're just looking at it going... What is that? And then all of a sudden they look up and they see T-Rex swallowing a goat whole. And the, and the guy, the, the investor guy, he just bails. He bails out of the car and he goes into this bathroom and like locks him in. And he just totally abandons these kids. And I'm pretty sure that everybody watching that movie at that point in time was like, oh, this guy's dead for sure. <laughs> he's he's gone. It it was so it's not really a matter of like if he was going to die, it was more like, well, I'm just kind of curious how T-Rex is going to eat him. <laughs> but you have this like sense of like, oh, like like something bad's going to happen. You're like, wait for wait for it. And you almost have this sense of like he, you know, you you almost feel bad about it, but you're like this guy kind of deserves to die, you know? But so like there's a sense of like justice there that's like, wait for something bad to happen to kind of solve this problem of this, of this guy that just abandoned these precious kids because then it like zooms in on the kids and they're just like completely terrified. And they're like, professor, where did he go? He left us. So anyway, it, this reminds me is kind of an analogy of when we see something um, that burdens us, the evil in the world that happens, the wickedness as it's rising, we also can have this kind of eerie feeling like, like man, something bad's gonna happen. This is not gonna last very long. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can look at some of the wickedness and the evil in the world, and we can respond not with a hope, but with a despair, with anxiety. And if you think that God's not coming, you think that justice isn't coming, you, you start to feel more anxious, you start to feel like, man, maybe I just need to bail. But God's people were designed to plant their feet and know this one fact, you guys. If, If you forget everything from this message, remember this one fact. God will defend his own name. God will defend his own name. So that is what we are waiting for. When we're like, wait for it, something bad's gonna happen. Some good is going to happen too. But man, if people continue to rise and blaspheme the name of God, we can wait for it. We can wait for him to defend his own name. In our uh, chapter here in chapter 5 of Daniel, we're coming to an interesting point. We're coming to a point where we have a new king. And this new king makes a really stupid decision, kind of like this, the professor guy who goes and bails and runs um, and ditches these kids. He does something that makes you kind of go, oh, wait for it. That was like, that was not good. Something bad's going to happen. And I think that the people of God, as they read this chapter, I think they're also reminded of this same truth that God will defend his own name. So we left off in chapter four. The last place we were reading was was chapter four where Nebuchadnezzar was sufficiently humbled by Yahweh. He actually becomes, he goes from being someone who is taking the people of God and just continually attacking them, throwing them in the fire, and God continually softens him until the point to where he becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. That's how chapter four ended. He was sufficiently humbled, and he becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. So now we have, from between chapter four and chapter five, it doesn't give us any context. It just jumps right into a new king, into a new setting, and just drops us right into a narrative where something interesting is happening. So let's read just in verse one, just to get us started on the narrative. Daniel chapter five, verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, who's this? Sounds similar to Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's given Babylonian name, but it's not the same person, so don't be confused. Daniel's not king here. So Belshazzar is a new king. Who is this guy? I have to explain a little bit as to who he is because daniel it 's the, the text itself doesn 't tell us who um, who this guy is, so I have to kind of give you context so between chapter four and chapter five there 's been a little bit over twenty years that that has taken place, so now we have um, we have several kings that have taken nebuchadnezzar 's place so Nebuchadnezzar, according to history, died of natural causes his son let's see if I can remember this i don 't remember the names, but I remember the the sequence of the kings. So Nebuchadnezzar's son takes the throne after Nebuchadnezzar dies. Then Nebuchadnezzar's son in law kills Nebuchadnezzar's son. Then, when he dies, I don't, I don't know, I don't think we know how he dies, but when this guy dies, then he is assassinated by another guy. And I'm pretty sure that guy that assassinated the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar was a king named, and pay pay attention to this name, it's going to come back around a few times, Nabonidus. Can you say Nabonidus? He's a very important person in this story that isn't named in this story, but he's, he's very important. So Nabonidus is the father of Belshazzar. And Nabonidus is not named here, but according to history... Nabonidus was, um, he, he was a king of Babylon, and uh, for a while, up until the mid-1800s, archeology span and history thought that Nabok- Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. And there was some conflict between history and archeology span and the Bible, and they were like, well, it proves the Bible's not true because we only know of Nabonidus being the last king. Well, in, in the 1800s, they found a couple, and in, in the 1900s as well, some things surfaced from the earth. And this often happens when people think that they can't trust the Bible. Something, something proves it, right? So an archeological find found that, in this is inscription that was from King Nabonidus. And it said that he was going off to a far country and he was entrusting the kingdom to his oldest son, Belshazzar. And so it's like, wow, yeah, we can trust our Bibles. That's just kind of a side note, but, um, but according to that and other finds, and you can actually Google these things if you want to write them down real quick, this, if you want to geek out a little bit, Google the Cylinder of Nabonidus of 1854, the Cylinder of Nabonidus, and the Persian verse account of Nabonidus of 1924. Persian verse account, Nabonidus. Both of those give us and fill in the picture of what what was kind of going on here. So that's who Belshazzar was. He was the son of Nabonidus. And so what it, what history also tells us, he went off to a far country, so-called, uh, he somehow like had, had this God, his favorite God that he wanted to worship that wasn't the God of Babylon. So he apparently just like, uh, went, to, like, to leave to go worship his God. And while he was away, he entrusted the, the kingdom to his son, Belshazzar. And we'll unpack a little bit more what's going on here. So that, that's who Belshazzar is. So let's keep reading. Let's read verse, read verse uh, two through four, verses two through four. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken. And I'm gonna say, I'm gonna stop here because it says father. There is no word in Hebrew or the original language here that, is, that communicates uh, that he is related, maybe his grandfather. There's no word there. So it's always gonna use the word father like as in like the fathers, right? So, So don't get confused there. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them, they drink wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar, bad idea, buddy. Bad idea. He's having a party, this giant feast. He, in, he invites th- a thousand of his people. And as he's drinking and he's tasting the wine, he says, I think it would be a great idea to pull the vessels or the goblets from the, um, from the storehouse, basically the storage, pull them out and let's use them to drink our wine and get drunk and praise our favorite idols. He thought that would be a good idea. But I think we look at this and we're like, ooh, something bad's gonna happen. Not not a good idea, buddy. Uh, we also need to ask, like, what's going on with this feast? Um, also, according to history, this is an interesting time in the the kingdom of Babylon. We're coming to a close. Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. If we keep reading, we'll find at the end of this chapter that um, we see the close of the last king. And then the Medes and the Persians take over after this. And what happened around this time when this feast is happening, Babylon is actually surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. One commentator said this, If the setting can be reconstructed, Nabonidus previously had gone forth from Babylon to fight the Medes and the Persians and had already been captured. The whole surrounding territory of the city of Babylon and the related provinces already had been conquered. Only Babylon, with its massive walls and fortifications, remained intact. Possibly to, and this is important, why, this, is, this is probably why this feast was happening. Probably to reassert their faith in their Babylonian gods and to bolster their courage, this feast in the form of a festival had been ordered. So they've been checkmated by the Medes and the Persians. They're surrounded. And likely they're thinking, man, our walls and our fortifications and our gods won't fail us. So we're just going to hunker down and we're going to throw a party and we're going to worship our favorite idols. So that's likely the the reason why they're having this feast. It gives you this impression of that, man, they're just clinging they're, they're, they're in denial. There's probably some underlying anxiety. <laughs> and what are, what are they doing with all of that? They're numbing it, and they're burying it with just partying. So likely, that is why the feast is happening. But we look at this next, this thing that, that, that the scriptures right here are highlighting, that they're taking the vessels out of Uh, where Nebuchadnezzar had put them and using them for this feast. That's the the biggest part of this that, that is being highlighted here. This isn't the first time we've seen these vessels flip back to the beginning of Daniel super fast. Daniel chapter one, verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, took these vessels out and put them in a storage And so we're left to think that these vessels have been in the storage this whole time. So I think that Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was a tyrant, had enough respect for these vessels to not pull them out and use them for something like this. But this guy, Belshazzar, takes it to the next step of arrogance. And he pulls these vessels out and he's like, we're going to use these to gloat over the Lord and God's people, in, in almost in saying, God's not coming. Their God's not coming. We, we can use these vessels however we want because they don't belong to the Lord. They're, they're ours. So there's this arrogance and this denial of God, which is very interesting because later on we see that this, this king was not unfamiliar with the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and how God Uh, worked in him. Super interesting. So it just speaks more of the arrogance and the brazenness of this king. Let's uh, keep reading uh, verses five and six. This is our, (laughs) something bad's gonna happen, okay? This, This is what happens. Verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. What in the world? Anybody else thinking that when they're reading that? What in the world is happening? A hand appears out of nowhere, starts writing something on the wall and it says that a lampstand was shining, the opposite of it. So just to make sure there's enough light so that, so that this king can see it. And it says, when the king saw the handwriting, he freaked. He freaked out. It says that uh, as he saw the hand writing, his color changed. So he's turning pale. His thoughts alarmed him. And his limbs gave way. <laughs> the, the, uh, I read a commentator that, that said that in the original language, that, that doesn't probably just mean that like his legs gave way, but like more stuff gave way. He's probably soiling his pants. He's probably that terrified. Do you see God responding and defending his own name here? Do you see the powers of darkness trembling? I think God's people would have received encouragement from this story, because think about it. Think about the embarrassment of being God's people, and having your uh, the, the items from your your whole your holy temple and and things that represent God and 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 people are misusing these things and and how embarrassing it would be. And then now to have this happen and how embarrassed this king would have been in front of all of these lords and concubines and all of his favorite people, he's he's completely humiliated in front of them. Let's keep reading verses seven through nine. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Does this look familiar? This has happened a few times before to Nebuchadnezzar. Something happens. He has a dream. He gets all alarmed and freaked out, freaks, he freaks out, and then he calls in his wise men. And what happens every time in this book? They have no answers for him. So here we are again, uh, a king, this king probably doing what he's always been doing, calling these men to tell him what he wants to hear, but knowing in the back of his mind that they're frauds. And so he just calls them forward and he's like, man, if there's anybody here that can tell me the answer, I will give you as much power as I could possibly give you. And a cool necklace and some cool clothes. And... I mean he he's like I have to know what this means. So so he offers them that and they come in and they're they're like they're like, "Dude, we can't even read that, let alone give you an interpretation." Sorry, and he freaks again. It says that his color changed again and that not only him but his lords were perplexed. Everybody in the in the room is confused and freaking out, which is a perfect segue to this next part of the story, look who enters in. Let's read uh, verses ten through twelve. The queen. This is actually uh, the the queen mother. So this is Belshazzar's mom. I lo- I love that his mom shows up here and watch watch what happens. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Notice the name. You notice he's being called Daniel? Not Belteshazzar? I think that's really notable. I think that's that's based on what's happened in the in the past of God showing Himself to be His God. Now that now all the people of Babylon probably know the God of Daniel. Let's keep reading. Uh, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Bel that's so hard to say, Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. All right. So we have this queen, queen mom who comes in at just the right time. She hears all the ruckus. She comes in, and she says, you don't have to freak out. Like, I I know someone. Actually, you've heard of him too. It's this Daniel guy. And then she begins to remind him of his reputation. And I love that it says that she came into the banqueting hall. That means she wasn't in the party. She was staying home at this time. And if she's so familiar with Daniel and she's so familiar with who he is and she's not in the banqueting hall, what does that tell you about what kind of a woman she is? She's probably likely uh, very much affected by what God has been doing in the kingdom of Babylon. She's probably very much affected by, in you know, uh, opposite of what her, how her son is responding She's probably um, a worshiper of Yahweh, and she's probably brokenhearted in the way that her son is a wayward. She's probably hurting for him as she sees him blaspheme the name of God. She's probably seizing this opportunity that she's been looking for for a long time, and she's like, Oh, something something's happening and this is my chance to introduce Daniel. Let's get Daniel back in there. Let's get God's prophet back in there so that my son can hear his words and be directed back to him so that maybe this kingdom would would get set back where it's supposed to go. I just think it's cool. This is like a point for moms. Go moms. So she's very acquainted with the prophet, and she is, she's seizing an opportunity here. Daniel being brought in, being introduced, and being reminded kind of back up to the surface, it's likely that since Belshazzar is calling for his own guys and not Daniel, it's likely that Daniel was set aside and forgotten. He, over After king after king, after the hands are changing, likely Daniel is just kind of off to the side, forgotten. And he's um, from chapter 4 to chapter 5 now. It's been, like I said, a little over 20 years. So he was about 60 then, and now he's about 80. So just picture Daniel just kind of, don't, we don't know exactly where he's at. But we do know that uh, between chapter 4 and chapter 5, Daniel was receiving visions and he was writing them down, and we'll actually get to see those, uh, those visions that he writes down in chapters seven and eight. So keep that, kind of bookmark that in your mind, that when we get to that point, it, those, that was happening between chapters, five and, or chapters four and five. So that gives us a little bit of what Daniel was doing all this time. He was hunkering down, seeking the Lord, praying, and God was giving him visions. All right, let's finish the story. Let's read verses 13 through 16. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you. So he's not completely unfamiliar with him. So he, he knows about him. He said, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me the interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. So he hears, hears his mother out. He takes her recommendation. He calls in Daniel. He um, likely is uh, thinking that he's sitting, still sitting in the seat of power to offer this power to Daniel. By the way, the third ruler in the kingdom, does that kind of um, spark a question? Why the third and why not the second? Oh, remember Nabonidus? Nabonidus was actually still uh, co-regent with Belshazzar. So that can bring a little confusion until you bring that piece in and you realize, oh wait, the second position wasn't available. The next thing that he could give was the third position. So then it kind of makes sense. Oh, he's, he is giving the most power he could possibly give in offering this, these gifts and the cool necklace and cool clothes. So he offers this to Daniel, and we're gonna stop there in our story, verse 16, and next week we're gonna pick it up. To be continued, we're gonna read the rest of the chapter. Um, Cliffhanger. Uh, But again, I think the people of God would have taken a lot of uh, encouragement and instruction from this. I think that when they read this, there, you know, as we know that this is a book not just to the Israelites, but it's also a book to the nations. God is re- reaching the nations. He's reaching Nebuchadnezzar. He's reaching this this queen mother. So I think that we have two main readers that are reading this. So what kind of instruction and encouragement do you think that these original readers would have would have got? I think one of them would be that you don't mess with Yahweh. Plain and simple, like you don't. You don't mess around with his vessels, his people, and, and Yahweh is going to defend his own name. I think that, that non-believers probably would have read that and they would have probably went, oh, let, let's be a little bit more careful. Let's not mess around here with God's people and God's stuff. I think that God's people would have received instruction and encouragement because they would be reminded that just the same thing. God defends his own name. God's going to show up. Darkness will not prosper forever. Wickedness will not prosper and, and be over us forever. So I don't have to be filled with anxiety, or I don't have to do things like bail, I don't have to do things like join the party and 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 bury my anxieties and my fears. I can know that he is coming. He is going to defend his own name. I think that's the kind of encouragement that they would have received. What about us? Can you relate to the people of Israel? When we look around in our world right now, there are a lot of things happening that could cause us to be filled with anxiety, to be filled with fear. We see wickedness prospering around us. We, we see evil happening and we contend to look at it and, and, and if we are convinced in our mind God's not coming and we forget that God's gonna defend his own name we can be filled with fear and anxiety. We can, we can join, basically join the party and, and just bury our fears. We can uh, bail. We can basically just just throw away our confidence in God completely and say, uh, like, he, he ain't coming. So I don't, I don't, this isn't worth it. But again, God wants us to know that he will defend his own name. What about these vessels? So if we don't have a temple today, Christians don't have a temple, we don't have a building, what's the temple today according to the New Testament? The church. We are where the Spirit of God dwells. Amen? So what are the vessels in the temple? Also us. (laughs) The New Testament talks about vessels a lot. If you do a word search, you'll see it come up. Speaks of us as Christians as vessels. But I would also say that human beings, in a general sense, because of the Imago Dei, because we are made in his image, we are his vessels. And that he cares about those vessels. He cares about these bodies that we're that, that we have, that we've been given. And um, one of the things that, that we see happening right now is, is a rise in this Darwinian understanding of our vessels. This Darwinian, godless, like there's no purpose, there's no purpose related to this skin. It, it's just, it, it is what it is, it's just, it's just a, a lump of cells, it doesn't matter what we do with it, and that can find its way into so many things. If you don't know that your body, that that it's a vessel, that that is treasured by God, that has a purpose, that God has a purpose for my body, man, if you believe that lie, all kinds of things will begin to happen, and we see a lot today. I'll just name a few. Uh, anything, any kind of sexual immorality is really tied in that idea that it really doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's that lie, that's that dualism that says that spirit is good, physical is bad. And that's a lie. That's not a Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine says that body and physical is all, and body and spirit is all made by God. And in the new heaven and the new earth, he's going to bring together the physical and the spiritual, and it's all going to be redeemed and restored. So it matters what we do with our physical bodies. And so when we hear the lie that uh, there's so many ways, so sexual immorality immorality is one of them, but abortion, it's the same it's it's if you consider the vessels, this vessel, this precious baby in the womb. If you consider that vessel to be like, oh, it's just it's a lump of cells, like it's it's not worth defending. That's a lie. Uh, murder, and when we see what's going on in in, in Israel, this this terrible, just um, disgusting. Way that that Hamas has, has treated Israel, and the way that they've cut up bodies, and I just want I don't even want, to want to like get too descriptive on what in, what they're doing, even with babies. This is evil. Wickedness seems to prosper, even in Christian persecution. Um, it's rising. It used to be in 1993 that. Um, Forty countries were experiencing extreme persecution. Now today, it's 76 countries. So we can look around us and we could see that wickedness seems to be prospering, but, but you guys, God's going to defend His own name. Don't forget it. He's going to defend his own name. Turn to First Peter chapter two. We're going to finish with some application using 1 Peter chapter two. And I wanna give you five ways that we can wait well under wickedness. Five ways that we can wait well under wickedness, knowing that God is going to defend his own name. Let's start with 1 Peter chapter two, verse six. We'll read in verses six through eight. The first way is, when wickedness is on the rise, look to the one who rose. When wickedness is on the rise, look to the one who rose. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. When wickedness is on the rise, look to the one who rose, the cornerstone. There is no better place, you guys, And if, if, I I know I said this already, but if there's one thing that you catch from this message, I think this would be it. There is no better place to see that God defends his own name when wickedness seems to prosper than the cross of Christ. I mean, look at the cross. Like, how much does wickedness seem to be winning at the cross? Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Why do you think they scattered? They were full of fear and anxiety. They were bailing. But then, on the third day, he rose. And he showed that he defends his own name. He shows that, that his name will be vindicated, that wickedness will not prosper forever, that death is defeated and that his people can rest assured in his finished work. So we can take that instruction and wait well, knowing that if wickedness seems to be rising, we look to the one who rose and know that the gospel is the best news. It's the best way for us to go, oh, yeah, this, this isn't going to last forever. God's here, he's coming. He's coming again. If he rose, he said he was going to rise. He said he was going to return. If he said he was going to rise and he rose, then if he said he's going to return, he'll return. Second way that uh, we can wait well under wickedness look, look at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. When things get dark, know that you are light. When things get dark, know that you are light. 1 Peter 2 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know what you're like? You're like the lampstand. You're like the lampstand that shines on that hand in the story of Daniel chapter five, illuminating the hand of God in the world. You know, the New Testament and, and, and Revelation says that the churches are lampstands. When I read that, I immediately thought of the church. That's you. You're a chosen people. You're a holy nation. You are a set apart, pulled from darkness into his marvelous light to be a light. When things get dark, you guys, know and remember that you are a set apart light In this world, to illuminate God's hand in the world. When people are like, He's not coming, it's too evil. There's there there are too many ways that wickedness is prospering. It's proof that God is not real. It's proof that God's not coming. It's proof that Jesus is not coming back like He said. We can be like, no. Let me help you see God's hand in the world. Let me, see, let me help you see God's hand at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Let me help you see God's hand in the prophecies that we read in the Bible. Let me help you see it because he's not absent, he's here and he's working. And it's not hopeless and we don't have to be filled with anxiety and fear and bail. We can plant our feet and know and be excited about what God is doing even in the worst of situations. Things can get bad and ugly, but our God is a God who is victorious and has set us apart as lights in a dark place. Third way that we can wait well under wickedness, as the world parties choose to be the mom. As the world parties choose to be the mom. Look at 1 Peter 2:11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Mom abstained. Mom stayed home. When the world is partying, they're they're taking their anxieties, they know something bad's gonna happen, they have that eerie feeling, and they're just like, we're just gonna bury it, we're just gonna numb ourselves with whatever we can find. That's not us, you guys. You know what else she did? She was well acquainted with the prophets. So as she was staying home, so to speak, she was becoming, she was remaining ready. She she was acquainted with the prophets so that when the world is shaken, you find people who are shaken from, from the from the wickedness that is prospering in the world, you can point them to the firm foundation. That's what she did. She seized an opportunity. She was waiting, she was staying home. She was like, I'm not gonna join the party, but I'm gonna be ready. When, when I see someone shaken. And, and full of fear and anxiety, I'm going to be ready to introduce them to the prophets and the scriptures and the word of God so that they can be pointed to the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Do that. If people look at you funny, if people call you names, hey, we are blessed to be counted worthy to suffer. Fourth way that we can wait well under wickedness. When you're dishonored, keep your conduct honorable. When you're dishonored, keep your conduct honorable. Look at 1 Peter 2 12 through 16. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is Daniel, isn't it? I mean, he just had that reputation among the Gentiles, this this solid, rock-solid reputation to where when the time came, they were like, get Daniel in here. Get him in here. And (laughs) I I love this, that um, it says, so that... um, when they speak evil against you, that they would be silenced. And we have in this story of Daniel chapter five, we've got a silenced king who was boasting over and gloating over Yahweh and the people of God, and, and man, was he silenced. But the reason uh, that, that we should be um, keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable is what it says in the ver- that very last verse So that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. God visited this king. And there's going to be a day of visitation where Jesus returns. And our job is when our good deeds, the purpose of them is not to earn our salvation. It's not to uh, keep our favor with God. But it's to so that when the day of visitation comes, that people would glorify God more. That's why. Why? That's why we need to keep our conduct pure among the outsiders. Even when we're dishonored, Daniel was set aside. Daniel was, even though he had proven himself over and over to be faithful and to be someone who had the answers and that, that Yahweh was using him to solve problems and solve riddles, he was pushed aside and, and forgotten is what it seems like. So even if you're dishonored, And called names, keep your conduct honorable. Fifth way, to wait well under wickedness. When the monsters come out, lock yourself in the prayer closet. This king was a monster. He was out of control. He had come to the point to where he was doing things that even Nebuchadnezzar wasn't doing. Let's look at verse, First uh, Peter two verse seventeen. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Daniel feared God more than he feared the emperor. He honored the emperor, but but when he was between the chapter four and chapter five, he was cultivating and fostering the fear of God in in him. And that's what we need to do, you guys, because there's going to be a lot of scary stuff that's happening around us. And if we're not intentionally fostering and cultivating the fear of God in us, we won't be ready to give an answer to people who need it. We have to intentionally set ourselves apart like Daniel did, foster the fear of God in us by praying, studying, meditating, fellowshipping so that we'll fear God more than the powers of evil. It's really easy to do, to tremble at darkness and forget that the darkness trembles at the feet of our Lord. He'll come, you guys. He'll defend his own name. Trust him. Rejoice, even. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it's hard to trust you, sometimes it's hard to, to rest, to wait. And not bail, and not be just feared, uh, f- filled with fear and anxiety. God, we ask that you would continually remind us of the greatness of your name, the greatness of your work, and how perfectly completed the work of the cross and the resurrection is on our behalf, and how it shows us that you are not going to allow the wickedness of this world. To hurt your name and your people and your image for much longer. So God, create in us this uh, this this confidence in you. Set us apart to be those who are continually pointing people to you, showing your hand in the world. Thank you, God, that you have by grace set us apart as a lampstand to be a light, not because of anything that we've done, but because of your mercy upon us. Just pray that you would send out everybody in this room as your ambassadors, filled with hope, filled with confidence in you, that we would glorify you. And and, and as we wait for the day of visitation, as we wait for your return, Jesus, I pray that your people Would be filled with expectation of you coming. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.